Hey everybody, welcome to Ideas On. In this episode, we're talking all about all things improv or not. You know, maybe it'll be about rhinos or buffalo. See what I did there? Very improv on my part. So just to remind everybody, I want to introduce the team. Let's just go around the horn. Olivia Allen, say hello. Hi. Duncan Kennedy. Hello, world. Jared Wells. Salutations. And joining us today, we are totally excited to have our collaborator and colleague, Bob Kodzis, improv master and proprietor of his wonderful consulting firm, Flight of Ideas. Bob's going to join us today to help us through thinking all about improv. Say hey, Bob. Hey, hey. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Great to have you. So just to remind everybody how this works, um, every month, uh, each member of the Ideas On team writes a blog, and we write it on the same topic. But as you can tell by looking, probably it comes from four very distinctively different points of view. We don't discuss the blogs ahead of time. We all come at them from where we come at them. And then we get on the horn once a month and slice them and dice them, hopefully with you. Uh, uh, we're, we're beginning to build a little viewership out there, and uh, we hope to see that grow even more. So we're going to kick this off with kind of a speed round. I kind of want everybody to take just 20 seconds and quickly reprise where did you go this month with your improv blog? And you know what? Let's start with Duncan. Oh, okay. So uh, I uh, reflected back on a previous chapter in my life when I was in a sketch comedy group in uh, upstate New York, and uh, we were transitioning from doing sketches to adding improv. And during the course of our learning, what I found is that good improv starts with structure. It's not as loosey-goosey as you always think it is. You need to have a you know, as others talked about with jazz, you need to agree on a time signature and a key and a tempo that can vary, but you need to have that structure, that scaffolding, and then you can pepper it in with whatever you want and some basic rules of the road, you know, always yes and, never shut anything down. Um, but it was really interesting for me as I got heavily involved with improv was how much structure and rules there actually are. Very cool. And of course, that would have been the aforementioned comedy group in which you did once cover yourself in peanut butter, if I don't miss my guess. That was actually the band, and that's next month's blog. Okay, very good then. Um, Olivia, where'd you go? Sure. So this year's been weird. I basically ran with the idea that sometimes, more often than not, we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> and improv is a way to navigate that. I know improv is a way for me to navigate that. I am a college student. Half of the time I'm making things up as I go. So... <laughs> That's where I went. Jared, where'd you go, buddy? So I discussed improvisation basically um, as a sort of universal framework for human creativity. It's something that I see as a, as a primal instinct that everybody has. I talked about how I really kind of remember learning to improv in playtime. And then as I got older, I became a jazz singer. Um, and then of course there's a lot of heavy improvisation involved in that. And then I discussed how the principles I learned there would affect me as an experienced designer and a writer later on. So basically it was my journey to improv uh, through the various stages of my life and then extrapolating it as a sort of universal philosophy of how humans create and innovate. You know, that's cool. And I'll go last. It, it, we all we all overlapped a bit this month, right? Um, on a couple of levels. One, I think, was with experience in performance, whether it's acting or as a musician, because that's kind of where I took off from. Um, not as much improving as a musician because I'm not that good a musician. Turns out I think you have to be pretty skilled to be great at, at certain forms of improv. But um, my friend Tom Kennington used to have this saying, he said, you know, 
isn't it great that the good Lord takes good care of those of us who have absolutely no idea what we're doing? Um, and to me, improv is, it kind of kind of builds on where Jerry went. Yeah, it's what we do. We species, we critters, we aggravated apes. We are the, the MacGyvering species, you know? We say, hey, look at that. What is that? That's a stick. No, it's not. It's a pirate sword. You know, I mean, so I kind of went there because it seems to me like everybody is improving all the time, <laughs> if we were honest. <laughs> so, Bob, having heard all this lunacy, what's your first take? What I love most about this is the fact that you're hitting it from all these different directions because, because I, I agree with Jared in that, that improv is DNA. And what you've done is you've shown us four very distinct ways to apply improv. And there's actually a whole school of improv called applied improvisation that's about not getting on stage and doing improv, but actually taking these skills and applying them to the unknown as it arrives in your lives. So, you know, I love Olivia's take on the concept that this is, that living is improv and that you're having to figure stuff out as you go. And uh, it reminded me of the quote from Ricky Gervais, who said that the best advice he ever received was somebody saying to him, nobody else knows how to do any of this stuff either. <laughs> and it was just so empowering. And this is the thing about improv. It is an empowering art form because you're forced to say yes. So you have to have the adventure. And since experimenting and experience, they have the same root for a reason, right? Because they come from the same God. And I feel like improv forces you into both of those worlds. So I love the different angles. I was really impressed I, to learn how much you all knew about improv from your own different perspectives uh, before even stepping into this room with you. So really great. Well, so that's probably a good front door for let's kick this around a little bit, open it up. So, you know, comments about what you read from other people or things Bob mentioned or stuff that's on your mind or stuff you thought about maybe after you posted your blog. It was really interesting to read people talk about improv as music or from the point of view of musicians, because I'm not a musician. I'm a singer, but I. I don't know anything about instruments or that sort of thing. I've, my take on improv has always been from the point of view of an actor and a person stumbling through life. So, um, so an actor. So an actor, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it was really interesting. I've, I've never thought about jazz and improv, but like obviously, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I told the story and I, I think I've told some of you guys, uh, you know, we, we worked for a guy at Walt Disney World, fabulous guy, just passed away last year named Judson Green. Um, and Judson was a consummate, consummate jazz musician, could, could have been a world class performer if that's what he had chosen to do. He had so many other talents, he ended up running Walt Disney World, may, maybe better than anyone's ever done it. But he got us all together once and he had his band on stage. We're like, oh, Judson wants to play because he liked to play. He would, Judson would go sit in the lobby of the, of the uh, Grand Floridian and just play the piano because he liked to, you know. So we said, oh, he's going to play. Well, what he did was he turned it into a lesson on leadership and said, look, you know, I want to talk to you about how a band works. I want to talk to you about improv. And he said the same thing Duncan said, which was, yeah, when so-and-so over here takes off on a solo and he'd cue the guy and the saxophone would go completely nuts and, you know, blow his mind and, you know, and end on, on the tonic, right? He'd say, he can do that because we've agreed on the time signature. We've agreed on the beat. We've agreed on the melody. And we have a cultural tacit sense also, and because there is a cultural piece, right? There's an unspoken but tacitly understood thing about, yeah, we're jazz dudes. 
and jazz dudes know what that means, right? Well, so in my musical career, I wasn't on a jazz dude. I was an acoustic, kind of an acoustic rock, acoustic folk rock musician. But once I wrote the thing, I said, you know, actually, we did do that. Somebody said once, hey, you guys' harmonies are really tight. Who writes that? And we're like, well, well nobody writes it. <laughs> we, just, we get on the stage and we sing it. And they, they said fairly, how do you know what to sing? And we were like, uh, how much chili do you know to put in the chili you're making? Well, I don't know. I taste it. I said, yeah, same, you know. We know where the harmonies are because we sort of know where the harmonies are. So there's that organic piece of this. And you know, I think, Jared, you touched on some of that thinking. Sure. Well, I mean, for 10 years, my first job and my second favorite job now <laughs> was as a jazz singer. And I performed with sometimes it was just me and a track, quite truthfully. And it's there isn't a whole lot of improvisation you can do with the track, at least so I thought. But I think I found in the spirit of jazz, you, you do have to have a lot of practice a lot of skill to know what you're doing but it's also the uh, the grounding of yourself to live in the moment you know i would see somebody's facial expression as i was about to go into an instrumental break and if they were looking happy i would that would affect how i would then go into a scat solo i would be elated i would be happy or ecstatic or if i saw that the room was more on a chill vibe i would go into something that was that felt a little bit more you know on the uh, the introspective side. And I couldn't define what happy scatting is or what introspective <laughs> scatting is for you, but I could say that it was a matter of being in the moment, feeling the feelings, the same emotional level as the people in the room. I found that to be a, a very strong indicator. And I think a lot of people like, uh, who don't really have a familiarity with jazz think of it as a very intellectualized, very unaccessible genre of music, but it's a very primal genre of music. And I think that the best jazz musicians are not the academics who know the theory so great. Um, it's the, the guys who can close their eyes and get a sense of how the people in the room are feeling and play to those human needs that they are not expressing in words, but expressing just in the essence of their being. I think, yeah. I think what you said is brilliant. And I think it ties directly to what Duncan was talking about in terms of the rules, because those rules give us the safety to be in the moment and to allow things to happen. And it seems to me that what you're all talking about is the basic principle of presence. Mm. And that is really being there. I mean, whole body listening so that you experience what the other people around you are experiencing and you're connected in a way that allows you to create something original together that blows the minds of the people around you. And like they ask, you know, who wrote that? We get on stage and get off stage all the time and have people say, come on, you guys made that up in the back and then brought it out to us, right? And, <laughs> and we never do it sack, but you know that's a very common path to sketch writing. Talk to us, Duncan, about how those rules affected your ability to play and create in that environment. Well, it was interesting. First of all, Jared, uh, we need to make sure Santa brings a karaoke machine to the Ideas <laughs> World office. Uh, Got to have some crooning happening. <laughs> when we were writing the sketches, they came out of improv when it was just the three of us you know, shooting the breeze late at night, partially influenced and just going off on a tangent somewhere. And suddenly there was some magic there. We'd start scribbling notes about what it was and we'd come back and start to formalize that. But then when we were doing the improv, we started with rules and then we're free to go off. And one of the impediments to us, once you know the improv got so good that it was actually starting to replace a lot of the sketch work in our show was um, 
sometimes getting lazy, you know, like a musician will have a lick that they like to throw into their solos in yep. a certain key or a certain tempo, and it's in their quiver and they pull it out. And people look forward to hearing that. But um, at least from a, uh, from a comedy standpoint, when you, if you want to really embrace, as you were saying, the presence of the moment, then when somebody shouts out something that you've heard before and you've killed with something before, it's always very easy to be lazy and just go back to something you know that works. <laughs> and so what we were doing is we would really push ourselves to not become complacent while we were on stage because we we're doing it so much. We, we just you know had a huge quiver of things that we could fall back on. But we always knew we had to get off with a laugh, at least to close that, you know, close that part of the show or whatever. So we, we would allow ourselves to do that. If we hadn't found a close in the moment, then we would allow ourselves, okay, let's get to a close that we know that works because we want to keep the show going. You know, we've been doing this for five or six minutes now, you know, roller coaster ride of the show. We got it, we got to move on to something here. So you got to end it big. But that 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 laziness when you're not present, it, it can be really detrimental to really you know, shortcutting what the the beauty and, and that magical moment when it really truly is spontaneous that improvisation provides. It reminds me of, of a couple of Disney stories, uh, Walt stories. The, the great one is, because remember, particularly with Walt, right? He, you know, people think of him the way they remember him in his later life. When he started the company, he was flying completely blind. He had not only did he have no idea what he was doing, nobody had ever done what he was trying to do before. So there was no roadmap whatsoever, it was all improv. So the first big break they ever had was Three Little Pigs. They released this cartoon and it was the first you know, full Technicolor cartoon and it was a success. It was the studio's first success. They actually made money, they could make payroll, you know? And so once everybody sobered up, um, you know, Walt's, it had his animators, they're all in there and Walt comes in the next day and they're like, hey boss, hey boss, you know, and we got, we're going to pitch you some great ideas. We got some great ideas for the next Pigs movie. And he said, boys, because they were all men, he said, boys, there's not going to be a ne next Pigs movie. He said, well, wh what do you mean? You know, <laughs> my God, it's the only thing we've ever done that worked. He said, boys, you can't top Pigs with Pigs, you know, and what they did became Snow White which was the first feature length animated. So, I mean, the point is to, to me, there's a component of improv that always says, not just yes and, but yes and, and maybe bigger too. How, how big improv to me, and again, I'm not an actor, but improv to me asks the question, how big can this be? How much can this be? How, how much more is there for us to play with or mine there? You, you know, I mean, I mean, it's it just... a basic rule that we have, Bob, uh, that, that says, if this is true, what else must be true? Ah. And we follow that rabbit hole as far as we can and, and to the point of absurdity very often, which is where the comedy is found, right? So we start with a very simple premise, cats can fly. Okay, yes, cats can fly. So if that's true, what else must be true? What else, folks? <laughs> if cats can fly, what else must be true? Yeah. Yeah, the other well, I'm actually asking you guys, improvise with me. <laughs> well, they catch fly, birds when they're flying. Right? Birds are at risk because cats can catch them in the air. What else is true? Well, it's going to change the FAA. We've got new regulations we're going to have to be dealing with. Uh, you know, we've got cats and drones in the same space. So now we've got fur flying everywhere. You all leaped on the yes and train immediately and said, okay, here's the premise. Now let's go with it. And each one of you came up with a completely different perspective on that reality. And those different perspectives for us on stage create the scene. 
So, so Bob, let, let me ask you, because that the, the call the question for me. Have you ever had a time where you, you went there and the people you're working with didn't pick it up? You throw it out there and then everybody's like, wait a minute, cats are mammals. They don't. I was like, has that ever happened to you? Absolutely. And the only way that you can survive that is to radically yes and those people. So yep. it's like you, you yes and their confusion. You yes and the absurdity of their inability to understand what the situation is. It becomes about something different than what you were talking about. But by its very nature, improv is evolution. It has to be. Also, you can have the ability of one of the people in whoever's having the conversation suddenly side with the audience who is not getting it and you know siding with the doubters so to speak yeah. and so now you've got tension where somebody it's not us versus them you suddenly scoop one person over to reflect them and represent them and defend them and suddenly they're different channels to get into the humor from their perspective as opposed to what you were doing on stage initially ah but letting go of your agenda right oh yeah 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 yes. and this is the thing Letting go of your agenda mm. is the one of the most critical skills you can have in any form of improv because if you're holding on to what you want and you're not opening yourself to what other people can contribute, it's not improv. Improv is a team sport. It's not stand-up. There has to be more than one person involved for improv to happen. Uh, that's why I love it. You know, there's a, a marvelous physicist, a guy named David Bohm, a great, one of the great American physicists. In the last half of his life, he became completely absorbed with the notion of, of the bridge between physics and spirituality. And he started studying Krishnamurti and all these things, but he invented this process and it's kind of a non, it's kind of a serious version of improv. It's it's actually called a Bohmian dialogue. And the whole premise of a Bohmian dialogue is you cannot have an actual dialogue if anyone has an agenda. So the only way you can enter into a real dialogue is for everybody to not bring an agenda. My God, the guy was doing improv, but but he was doing improv on, you know, what happens to the soul when it reincarnates. And by the way, what how many kinds of quarks are there? And he said, the problem with science is we get trapped in our forms. And so he said, in fact, that's why we call these things discoveries. He said, that's ridiculous. We didn't discover them. They were already out there. We're just learning to pick them up and run with them. You know, anyway, I thought that was fascinating. That's an amazing one. Something else I'd knock on about presence is it's not just in that split second moment of, you know, the inertia of where things are going and the firing of, of the uh, neurons to keep pace, but it's also remembering what has happened because at least from a comedic standpoint, some of the biggest laughs you can get doing improv is when you two or three minutes later reference something that came out of nowhere, but you've remembered that nugget and throwing that call back out on an audience completes the circle for them and you'll get a huge, you get yeah. a huge. Huge laugh. So right. When I would do solos and singing, uh, it, whether it was scatting or whatever, the part that the audience always responded to was after you go into this crazy riff, and with other musicians too, is when you would tie in the the bit of that core medley or melody, or or to another song that's that's related or familiar. For me, I always went back to "Blue Sky Shining at Me." I try to I try to find a way to work in that little melody line because it's a recognizable one. Everyone works, but people go crazy when they hear something that they identify with. Um, and that they know they feel smarter, they feel um, more a part of the moment, I guess. I always credit Kelly Pounds with saying this. She's our colleague. Uh, I, I don't know if she really invented it or not, but there's the, the corollary is you don't ever want to get so far out in front of your audience that they mistake you for the enemy and shoot you in the back. Um, <laughs> you know, so that story, I was listening to Charles Lloyd. And if you don't know who Charles Lloyd is, he's one of the great living jazz masters in the United States. Just, mm -hmm. 
he you've probably never heard his name but he's behind so many of the great jazz players our good pal and colleague tim duffy was a big student of charles lloyd's but i just was listening to a piece he did the other day and it's got a huge like tabla drumming solo in the middle and it goes completely ape it's like you don't you can't even remember where they started the button on the end to your point about getting back to something the audience can grab is after this wild solo it's on the tablas there it goes bump bottle deep bump bump yeah, bump that's probably the most famous and, and and it was a live recording and the place went completely apeshit i mean <laughs> the place went nuts you know you know i was also thinking about some of the masters of like you know comedy groups like for me and, and i'm the old guy here but you know oh, yeah. there, there was monty python yeah. uh, of course which if you know anything about the pythons you know that they didn't write that stuff that that was stream of consciousness they'd set up a framework they'd do the characters and then wherever it went it went you know yeah. and so among the most famous routines the fish slapping dance which is one of their greatest ever there's not a single word in it that was completely roll the camera you know, and these, we got this many seconds and then, then they just came up with whack and prancing around up there. Before that, there was a group which I forced Olivia to listen to several times. Fire Fire Sign Theater. And if, you know, they are they are, you know, and our, our good pal, you know, who we got to work with Peter Bergman um, was one of the fire signs and they took it to a whole other level. And maybe this is common in y'all's experience, too. They didn't even like each other very much. You know, Proctor and Bergman did not they didn't hang but when they got in the in the studio and and i'm talking about an analog radio studio with audio tape no digital nothing did all of it live all they had was a premise and they just went even the character they made the characters up on the fly so you know now there was some like porgy tire bite or some of those recurring characters they would they had those in their in their kit bag but you know i was always amazed at how can you do this with someone you don't particularly care for there has to be respect, though. They, they there was. To, I know a lot of performers who don't hang uh, off of the stage, who are incredible chemistry and otherwise on stage. And it really is. It's amazing to watch them transform. But it's performing. I mean, it's, okay. it is. It's also the rules of the road. Um, you can be a jerk off stage. You can even be a jerk on stage as a character jerk. But as long as you respect, like, you know, uh, we used to call it know your 16. So if you're doing a solo, you got 16 bars, you know, <laughs> so know your 16, because if you get up there and start a soliloquy, you know, we're going to bust that bubble 30 seconds later because the audience is expecting it to be busted or whatever. They want you to do something. So you either know your 16 to hand it off, to build up or to join or conjoin with somebody or or setting up a juxtaposition where somebody's going to come in. And, but you got to you got to play nicely, I guess, is a better way of phrasing it. Or not, because we do we do it by bumper cars as well sometimes, right? Don't we? And <laughs> yep, we yep, get sure. to the point where they're they're taking their thirty-two, and you're like, "Well, we're going to bust this up in the funnest way possible." Yep. And then you go back in the green room and you say, "You know, we agreed on these rules. You broke the rules. We broke the rules too. So let's not do that again." That's another yep. thing I want to talk about: the post, because mm. we talk about being live and in the moment, right? And that's very critical to improv. But another thing is very critical to us, especially at Sac Comedy Lab is the post-mortem after the show, to sit down yeah. for 10 minutes and talk about what worked, what didn't work, who felt supported, who didn't feel supported, and what commitments can we make to each other so that the next time we do this, it feels better and it is better. And uh, it's, it's a really lovely element. It's very you know self-critical, uh, not in a harsh way, we're kind to each other, but we tell each other the truth in that space. Uh, even if it hurts. So mm. what kind of experience do you guys have with the, with the experience of the post? 
Well, one I can throw out right because we we've all you've all been part of it is Story Jam. No, it's clearly not performance art for the sake of art, it, but it, but I would argue it is a performance art of a kind. And we have a very specific set of objectives we got to get to, but we always post them. In fact, sometimes we we on the fly them. I can't tell you how many times I've walked up to Duncan right in the middle of a jam saying, you know what? Next time we do this, we need to give more direction. They're lost. Yeah, right. You know, right. Write that down. I mean, so it's kind of like continuous improvement. You know, <laughs> I think we all we always debrief those. The rule for Story Jam to me is, is I'll, I'll quote another guy. The guy that hired me at Disney was a guy named Bob Yanni, ran entertainment. And Bob had a lot of famous quotes. Um, but, but our favorite was, we never do the same thing once. I mean, <laughs> you know, and that, that's kind of been the motto for Story Jam. And part of that is to say, let's make this fresh. Let's not say, ah, oh, you know, yeah, we might repeat an exercise because it's the right exercise. We're not going to do it the same way. And I think getting at that post-mortem or that after-action report or lessons learned if you're a Marine, you know, that's a critical part of it. It's interesting for me because I have not done a lot of like actual formalized performance improv other than like improv games in theater. So most of my experience with post notes have been, okay, here's what happened in the show and here is the notes we have on it, or I have been doing tech and I have been saying, you know, it would actually be a lot easier if we cut all the actors out of the show <laughs> um, and just had the props. Um, but, and it, it kind of, it goes back to like most of my experience with theater is more structured. Like when I was in middle school, they reiterated the fact that when you are performing Shakespeare, yeah, you need to, to speak the words exactly because of the iambic pentameter. And I performed in operas and stuff where you have to say the right things because it's in a different language and it's all this stuff. So when I, I go to try to perform improv, it's like, okay. So the idea of having a, like a sort of post for improv is counterintuitive to me for some reason. Well, I gotta tell you too, I, and I'll bust you on this. You did a show once uh, it was the one where you played Edith the maid. Yeah, uh, Blind Spirit. That was Blind a Spirit. Well, so, you know, in the middle of it, you come on stage, you got one line to deliver, and you decided to channel your in your inner Monty Python. So the oh. line was, they, they say, just go in the kitchen and have a sandwich. But and Olivia, sandwich. Olivia pops out with, but I don't want a sandwich. From, um, straight from Holy Grail. So well, I will say, like, I fall down a lot. Uh, I fell down like three times when I was in Urintown and Chicago. So that was um, a bit of improv that I had to deal with, standing up in like huge heels. But yeah. improv is very often sitting in it. I have a good friend, David Rizowski, who's an incredible improviser, who's worked with Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell. And I mean, really amazing. And one of his big lessons is finding comfort and discomfort and being able to sit in that discomfort, realize the limits of that discomfort, and then realize the things that you can do with that discomfort. Uh, I, you know, we too often become dares in the headlight when we get uncomfortable, when we should just ease into it. Because I mean, how many of us have spent even one day without discomfort in our lives? We should, to some extent, be used to this thing. We should be an old friend, not an intruder in our lives, right? So Comfort with discomfort, I think, is one of the greatest paths to happiness in life. That's a giant insight and really useful. Without the discomfort, I might even argue we're not 
You know, if you're not falling down, you're not skiing hard enough. We're not going to get better. We're not going to make bigger, greater, more cooler, more beautiful. We're not going to do any of that unless we push. And if we push, sometimes it's, it's like, how did I get up on this rock and how the hell am I going to get down? You know, but maybe that really is the quintessential improv moment is, yipes, okay, here we go, you know. If we could just adapt that so that every time that unexpected shows up in your life and you treat it like an actual plot twist, because if you're watching a movie or you're reading a book and you hit a plot twist, you're psyched. You're like, yeah. ah, plot twist, this is so great. But in real life, we don't go plot twist, this is so great. We go plot twist, this sucks. Well, look, we can all try it. We got spring coming up, right? So this year, here's what we want everybody to do. This little piece of advice uh, from the Ideas On team. This year at tax time, we want you to just call the IRS and say, yeah, no, just kidding. Here's what we're really going to do. This, and tell us how that goes. We'd love to hear, you know, <laughs> love to hear your success with that. Uh, hey, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap, but I'd like to do this for about four more hours speaking of improv. What a blast. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us. This is new. This is fresh. This is only our second episode. We're going to build up a nice library out there. It is so much fun. So lots of ways you can find us. Uh, you can find the blogs, which if you're a reader and we love you to read them, you can find those at our website at ideas.com. Just click on the, on the blog link and you'll see the Ideas On blog page. You can also find the Ideas On channel on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts, uh, we're there too. So Please join us and send us notes, argue with us, yell at us, tell us we're goofy, whatever you'd like to do. We'd, we'd like to get you into the dialogue as well. And uh, we will see you on the next one. Take it easy, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.